0: goblins and ghouls to the first episode of my three-part Halloween series. I'm your host Ariel, and tonight we will be doing things a little different. To celebrate the holiday season I have selected some famously haunted locations but these locations come with dark and disturbing backstories. Since I talk about paranormal on my show I talk about death a lot and I've talked about some really sad and disturbing ones in the past. But tonight's episode is linked to a very famous true crime, and it's very brutal. And because of this, I wanted to give you all a warning that tonight's episode will contain graphic and disturbing descriptions of historically documented case files that might be gruesome for some audiences. We will also have some very disturbing and adult subject matter to discuss that goes along with the case, and I just wanted to give everyone a heads up right now. If you at any point have to turn off this episode today, I wish you guys the best Halloween ever, and I hope to see you back for future episodes. Tonight, we will be covering the brutal killing of Abby and Andrew Borden, with the Andrew's youngest daughter, Lizzie, being their prime suspect. The attack and the case that followed would go down in history, leaving the home that the crime scene was committed in, a famous location for the morbidly curious and macabre to visit. The Lizzie Borden case has fascinated me ever since I was a kid, and it all started when I heard a creepy nursery rhyme being sung on the playground. At that moment, I knew I had to learn more. That curiosity plunged me into becoming a true crime junkie. Any mystery that is still unsolved or story where someone has died due to suspicious circumstances, send me into a deep dive, virtual stringboard making tailspin to try to find out who done it. This is probably why Clue is my favorite board game and why I love the show Only Murderers in the Building. I have always wanted to discuss a true crime case on this podcast and now this is my chance because this topic also has to do with the paranormal. I'm going to start off by going over this famous case and then I will talk about the ghosts that are still said to reside inside this modest two-story 19th century house. While I discuss this famous case and possible suspects, I hope you will join me in making your own stringboard in your head. Although if you feel up to it, you can create a real one as you follow along. Now, let us dive into the case that was dubbed the crime of the century as we try to piece together the strange clues and behaviors of all involved, even the victims. By the mid-1800s, the town of Fall River, Massachusetts had a booming textile industry. The town was divided between the haves and the have-nots. The wealthy textile factory and mill owners lived above the city in large Victorian-style mansions on what was known as the Hill. The factory workers, mostly immigrants, lived down by the river in small houses. The downtown area had several shops and restaurants, and for the most part, the town was quiet. The local police mostly dealt with drunken disorderly calls and often rounded up prostitutes. The people of Fall River didn't experience too much excitement. Every day was the same. The workers went to work in the mills, The businessmen did their business, and the factory owner's wives went about their daily tasks of running the house. The wealthy tried to entertain themselves with tea parties, social calls, and evening dinners with friends. But overall, life in Fall River was pretty monotonous. Yes, nothing exciting happened in town, until one morning on August 4th, 1892, two people from the wealthy elite inner circle of Fall River were brutally murdered in broad daylight. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I wanted to set the stage for all of you, so you understand how shocking this was for the people of Fall River, because the spectacle around this crime was just as intriguing as the crime itself. And on that note, it's time to meet the Bordens. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born in Fall River, Massachusetts on July 19, 1860. Her mother was Sarah Anthony Borden, and her father was Andrew Jackson Borden. Lizzie also had an older sister named Emma, who was born in 1851. Lizzie and Emma's mother passed away when Lizzie was very young. Andrew Borden was not from a wealthy family, and he had to work hard before becoming a successful businessman. His first business was manufacturing and selling furniture along with caskets. After he gained money from his business, he then became a successful property developer. After this, he worked his way up to become a director of several textile mills, and he owned several commercial properties in the downtown area. He also became the president of the Union Savings Bank, as well as the director for Drew Free Save Deposit and Trust Company. Andrew's estate was valued at $300,000. In today's money, that would be $9 million $630,000. The Bordens were one of the wealthiest families in Fall River. However, Andrew Borden lived frugally. Instead of owning a grand Victorian mansion on the hill, Andrew bought a small, narrow, two-story house on 2nd Street in the business district. The house was only 20 feet wide and did not have any hallways. This meant each room opened up into the next and there wasn't much privacy. He kept the home very basic he never added gas lighting or indoor plumbing the family had to make do with a privy that was in the basement and it also took him a very long time to even add running water to the home and the running water of course was cold because he didn't pay for the extra fee of having hot water because that was available during this time period he was also cheap about the food they ate he only bought the cheapest cuts of meat old vegetables that were on markdown and he forced the family to eat leftovers until they were gone even if they had turned bad. The Bordens also only had one maid for the household. Even from a young age, Lizzie and Emma resented their father for hoarding the money. They were never allowed to have super fancy dresses. They weren't living in a grand house on the hill. They didn't have an army of servants that did everything for them, so the girls had to do a lot of the house chores, which during Victorian times, if you were rich, that simply wasn't done. Wealthy women in rich families during the Victorian period did not work. Lizzie and Emma were often embarrassed when they would go to social functions because they were surrounded by other rich girls from town who had the best of the best when Lizzie and Emma just didn't have that luxury. When Lizzie was young, she and Emma would attend their cousin's tea parties. Her cousin lived on a house on the hill and Lizzie would be super upset when it was time to go home because she longed for that lifestyle. Andrew Borden married Abby Drufie Gray three years after the death of his former wife Sarah. This marriage did not sit well with Lizzie and Emma. The girls believe that Abby was only marrying their father for his money. This is when the facts get a little murky because this case was so sensationalized and has been overanalyzed over a hundred years and many of the true facts have become embellished so it's hard to know what is 100% true and what is just rumor that got wrapped up into the case. A lot of the stories seem to have twisted Abby and to make Making her seem like a wicked stepmother type of character. But it's hard to know for sure if she was or wasn't. However, there is documented proof that Lizzie did not like Abby. Lizzie was known for openly discussing her distaste for Abby to people in town and at church functions. Now the question is, were these claims warranted? Or did Lizzie just enjoy making stuff up and being mean? And you're going to find that many parts of this case have very open-ended questions like this. And it just adds to the mystery of the case. So exactly who was Lizzie Borden? Up until the murders, Lizzie was described as a sweet, kind person. She was not disruptive and it's said that she was average in school. She was also very active in her church. She taught Sunday school to people who had just immigrated to America and she was a member of the Christian Endeavor Society. However, there was also a strange and darker side to Lizzie. According to reports, she was known to be a kleptomaniac. According to Google definitions, kleptomania is a serious disorder that causes an irresistible urge to steal items that aren't needed and are usually of little value. It's a compulsive behavior and people may experience impulsivity, pleasure after stealing, or a sudden urge to steal. Anxiety and depression are also common with this disorder. Lizzie stole random items from shop owners in town. After getting caught a few times, her father told the shop owners to just let her get away with it and to put anything that she took on his tab. As time went on, Lizzie began to be fed up with her father's decision to hoard his wealth. In Lizzie's mind, he was not doing anything to help his daughters out. However, in 1887, Andrew bought a house for Abby's younger sister to save her from eviction. The girls resented both their father and Abby for this. Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother, and from that point on, she called her Mrs. Borden. Lizzie also began to disconnect from her family. She became withdrawn even from Emma, who was like a mother to Lizzie. The girls also stopped eating dinner with the family and did not want to be associated with them in public. Eventually, Lizzie's father caved, and in 1890, he sent the girls on a trip to Europe with their wealthier cousins. Lizzie came back from the trip more frustrated than ever. In Lizzie's mind, she wanted the high life. She wanted servants, mansions, carriages, expensive clothes, suitors. She wanted it all. After her trip enjoying such luxury for a while, this made her feel devastated that she had to return back to her boring home in Fall River. One thing to understand is this is during the Victorian period, and Lizzie is just now entering her early 30s at this point, and women aren't usually single in the Victorian period in their 30s. That just wasn't done. So the fact that Lizzie and Emma, who was much older than Lizzie, was still single as well. But the fact that they weren't married, they didn't have any kids, they didn't have a house of servants to run. These women were probably so bored. And I would imagine that Lizzie especially was bored out of her skull. She attended the church and she was a part of that church uh, group. But other than that, Lizzie was so bored that she had nothing to do but just do her chores at home and read and that was it. So I could understand why after having this grand tour of Europe to come back to that house and be that bored again, I could understand why she wouldn't want to do that and why that would be very upsetting to her. So in June of 1891, the girls reported an unusual daytime robbery while Andrew and Abby were out of town. However, the robbery occurred while Lizzie, Emma, And their maid, Bridget Sullivan, were all at the home. The police came to the house to investigate, and Bridget and Emma told the police that they didn't hear or see anything. Lizzie, however, was more than willing to give the officers an animated tour of the entire house. She made a point to show them a small screen door that appeared to have been torn by a nail. The officers doubted anyone entered through that particular door, and in fact, they suspected Lizzie to be the culprit of the robberies due to her strange behavior. The items that were stolen were taken from Abby's desk, and they included some of her jewelry, $50 in cash, and some trolley tickets. After this robbery, Andrew was very strict about keeping all of the doors locked at all times even when people were home. Arguments over money happened more and more frequently inside the home. Their father began gifting land away to random family members. Even though Andrew had given Lizzie and Emma their grandfather's old house as a rental property, there was still resentment toward their father. Andrew only gave the girls that house after they both got mad at him for buying a house for Abby's sister. And the house was a money trap. They didn't end up gaining much of a profit from it because of how much work they had put into it to keep it up for rental use after one of these large family arguments lizzie stopped calling abby mother and only would refer to her as mrs borden other strange rumors began to spread throughout fall river around this time one rumor said that lizzie had killed her stepmother's cat another said that lizzie's father had killed her pigeons and this really upset lizzie needless to say strange things started to happen inside the borden's home And now we've come to the day of the murders. Thursday, August 4th, 1892 began as a typical day in Fall River. The only difference at the Borden's house was that Emma was out of town staying with friends, and the girl's uncle, John Morris, the brother of Andrew's first wife, had spent the night in the upstairs guest bedroom. Another odd thing that happened that morning was the whole family was sick. The Borden's maid, Bridget, was so ill that she was periodically running out the back door to throw up in the backyard. The family had been forced to eat mutton broth for breakfast over the last four days. Many people today believe that the soup was bad, but some people think something more sinister was going on, and we'll discuss more about that later. That morning, John ate breakfast with the family and then left at about 8.45 a.m. to visit relatives. Andrew left soon after this to do his daily rounds of visiting businesses that he owned downtown. After Andrew left, Mrs. Borden told Bridget to clean the windows, and then she headed upstairs to clean the guest bedroom. Bridget gathered a bucket and some rags from the kitchen and went outside to begin cleaning. Bridget noticed Lizzie looking out of the screen door, and told Lizzie that if she wanted to lock the door, it would be alright, because she could get fresh water from the well near the barn. Bridget washed the windows outside, but she did stop for a bit to have a chat with the next door neighbor's maid, and then she completed the outdoor windows. Next, Bridget went inside and began cleaning the inside of the windows, beginning inside the sitting room. Andrew Borden was feeling ill and returned home before 11 o'clock, which was earlier than usual for him. Bridget heard him at the door and went to let him in. The door was stuck and Bridget said a mild Irish curse word when she had to pull harder on the door than usual. Bridget thought that she heard Lizzie (laughs) laughing at the top of the stairs. Bridget went back to washing the windows while Andrew went into the sitting room. Lizzie came downstairs to talk with him and according to Bridget, Lizzie asked him if he had any mail for her, and then Bridget overheard Lizzie tell her father that Mrs. Borden had received a note about a friend who was sick in town and that she had left in a hurry. Mr. Borden then took the key from the mantel and went up the back staircase, but he came back down a few minutes later. Bridget had just finished the windows in the sitting room at this point, so she went into the dining room to continue washing windows. As Bridget left to enter the dining room, Mr. Borden entered the sitting room to lay down for a nap on the sofa. Lizzie brought an ironing board into the dining room and Began to iron some clothes. Lizzie then said to Bridget, Maggie, are you going out this afternoon? Now remember, Lizzie and her sister Emma, for some reason, called their maid whose real name was Bridget Maggie. So if I ever say Maggie, that's what I mean. She's talking to Bridget. Most historians still don't understand why the girls called her Maggie when her real name was Bridget. So nobody knows why, but if I ever say Maggie, I'm talking about Bridget. So after Lizzie asked Bridget if she was going out that afternoon, Bridget's reply was, I don't know. I might, I might not. I don't feel very well. Lizzie then reminded Bridget that if she did go out that afternoon to lock the door, because Abby had gone out on a sick call and Lizzie also said that she might be leaving for that afternoon as well. Bridget asked who was sick and Lizzie said that she didn't know just that it must be a friend in town. Bridget continued to wash the windows and moved into the kitchen Just as she was finishing up, Lizzie came into the kitchen and encouraged Bridget to go out of the house. This time, Lizzie told Bridget about a big sale of dress goods at a popular store in town, and Lizzie told Bridget that she should go and not miss a good sale on dress goods, and the sale was only going to be happening that day. Bridget told her that she would like to go, but she all of a sudden began feeling ill again, so she went up to her attic room on the third floor to rest for a while. Bridget remembered hearing the town's clock tower toll 11 o'clock. And the next thing she remembered was hearing Lizzie calling out for her to come downstairs, saying that her father had been killed. When Bridget got downstairs, Lizzie told her to run across the street to Dr. Bowen's house and bring him back. The doctor wasn't home, but several neighbors had come to the house. A while later, Dr. Bowen arrived and gave Andrew an examination. He determined that the murder... Must have happened just before Lizzie found the body because the blood was still fresh, still seeping from his wounds. His face had been obliterated by several blows of what looked like a sharp object. After a quick examination, the doctor then covered Andrew's face with a sheet. By this time, some of Lizzie's friends had shown up and began asking where Abby was. Bridget offered to go into town to find her when Lizzie said that she actually thought that she had heard Abby come home and that she might be upstairs. Then she told Bridget to go up and look for her. Bridget did not want to go up alone, so a friend of Lizzie's named Mrs. Churchill went with her. As the women reached the landing, both girls looked directly eye-level with the floor of the guest bedroom, and there was Abby Borden, laying face down on the floor, in a pool of blood. She had been hit with a sharp object several times, just like Andrew. After this discovery, someone finally decided to call the police. Meanwhile, more people were gathering at the house as the word of the murder spread. Some of these visitors came inside the house and may have moved some items around because they were worried about how the house looked. I even found some accounts of Lizzie's friends deciding to help her clean the house while the police were on the way, So. So, needless to say, this crime scene was completely contaminated. Finally, the police arrived with the county's chief medical examiner. The Fall River police had little experience dealing with these kinds of crime scenes. The first thing that they did was took photographs of the bodies right where they were found. Cameras were a new technology at this time, so using photography in criminal cases had become one of the most important tools for police work. After the photographs were taken, an autopsy was performed in the same house right where the bodies were discovered. They actually laid the bodies down on the dining room and kitchen tables. While all of this was going on, Lizzie, Bridget, and Lizzie's uncle, who had returned at some point in the afternoon, were all allowed to remain together in the house and were all questioned inside the home. By this time, there were hundreds of people gathering outside. The murder was becoming quite an exciting event for Fall River. Never in the history of Fall River had a murder like this occurred. Meanwhile, inside the house, some officers conducted a search hoping to locate the murder weapon. They did find a few axes in a box behind the chimney in the basement. They chose one with a broken handle because the blade had some ash on it and they thought that it showed someone had tried to clean it. The police, however, did not search any of the rooms that belonged to Lizzie or Emma because the thought of going through women's things was not appropriate for the Victorian era. As you can probably tell, the Fall River Police Department was not prepared for this. Not only were they indecisive in their actions, but they did not know how to process a murder scene properly, they didn't know how to conduct interrogations right, and they also did not put much thought into who was coming in and out of the house. But nothing like this had ever happened in Fall River before, And this was during the late 1800s, so things that they did back then is just not what we do today. They didn't have the knowledge to know about forensic science, they didn't know any of that at this point in time. So it's easy for us to judge them, but back then they didn't know anything that we know today. Even though they didn't have the same forensic science knowledge that we do today, one thing was blatantly clear to police when they got there, whoever committed these murders did it with rage. Both crime scenes were covered in blood, and the bodies were beat so badly that they were unrecognizable. After only a few hours of being inside the house, the police came up with this timeline. At 9.30 a.m. Abby was upstairs cleaning the guest bedroom when she was suddenly attacked from behind. It's believed that she saw her killer because there's one ax mark in the side of her face, like she heard someone behind her turned around and got hit. The first blow to the head caused her to fall on her face on the guest bedroom floor. After this, the killer repeatedly hit her over and over and over again with some kind of sharp object. In all, she received 19 blows to the neck and head. Andrew arrived home at 10.40 a.m and after being led in by Bridget, talking to Lizzie about the mail and going upstairs for a quick moment up the back staircase, he then came back down to the sitting room to lay down for a nap. A little before 11 o'clock AM, Bridget wasn't feeling well and went to lay down in her attic bedroom. The police determined that Andrew was killed around 11 o'clock, just before Lizzie discovered his body, since his blood wasn't congealed like Abby's was. Since Andrew's body was found laying face up on the sitting room sofa, it's believed that when Andrew went to go lay down for his nap, somebody had slipped into the sitting room and stood over his face and beat him repeatedly with the. Sharp object. His face was hit so many times that his skull actually caved in, and there was blood spattering everywhere. On the ceiling and on the walls, the damage was so bad that one of his eyes had actually popped out of his socket and was laying on his cheek. In total, Andrew received 11 blows to the face. The Fall River police might not have done a good job cordoning off the crime scene, but one thing was clear to them whoever did this. It was personal. By now, word had spread throughout the town, causing people to leave work and run to the boarding house. Even people from neighboring towns began arriving to join in on the spectacle. There were about 2,000 people gathering outside of the Bordens' home, including reporters for local and national newspapers and The Wire. Within a few days, news of the murder spread all around the world, and people of Fall River became terrified that there was a mass murderer on the loose. Pressure was on the police department to find this so-called murderer. So police began to round up all known criminals, the mentally ill, and some immigrants. Very soon after this, the police began to think that the murders had to be an inside job. John was questioned again, but he had a strong alibi. His relatives confirmed that he had been with them during the time of the murders. Lizzie's sister, Emma, was out of town visiting friends and it didn't make sense that Bridget would kill her employers and then put herself out of the job. Lizzie was left as the main suspect. She had been alone in the house all morning, and she would inherit her parents' money. People of Fall River also knew that she did not have a close relationship with her stepmother, and she was embarrassed to be out with her whole family in public. On Friday, August 5th, Lizzie and Emma put a large ad in the newspaper It read $500 reward, the above reward will be paid to anyone who may secure the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who occasioned the death of Mr. Andrew J. Borden and his wife signed Emma J. Borden and Lizzie A. Borden. I do find it kind of interesting that they didn't put Abby's name in the paper at all. They just said Andrew J. Borden and his wife. So that does show that they really did not like Abby. On that same day, the Fall River Globe ran a story about a druggist who identified Lizzie as someone who tried to buy 10 cents worth of putrid acid, a lethal poison. Lizzie claimed that she wanted the acid to clean a seal skin cape. The druggist refused to give it to her, and this caused many people in town to believe that Lizzie might have committed these murders after all. The next evening, the mayor of Fall River visited the Bordens and told Lizzie that she was the prime suspect to the murders. It was decided that an inquest for the murders would be held on Thursday, August 9th, at the Fall River Police Station. Lizzie was asked to give an account of what she was doing the morning of the murders. Her testimony gave conflicting answers. First, she said she was ironing handkerchiefs in the dining room. Then she suddenly remembered that she was reading a magazine in the kitchen. She wasn't sure where she was when her father came home. She said that she may have been on the upstairs landing or in the kitchen. Then she said that she spent 20 minutes eating some pears near the barn. And then she said that she was in the barn looking for fishing sinkers. But then she admitted that she hasn't fished in five years. Lizzie also refused to answer a few of the questions. One reason for her rambling may have been because she had been given morphine sulfate by Dr. Bowen to calm her nerves just before she testified. The presiding judge Joshua Blaisdell had her arrested and charged with murder. She was taken to... To the towton prison 20 miles away because the fall river jail did not have any facilities for women as you can imagine the official arrest of lizzie borden and seeing her charges in the newspaper had the people of fall river stunned lizzie a suspect A frail upper-class lady who killed her own parents violently with an axe? The thought of it was unfathomable to people during the Victorian era. Upper-class women did not murder. Sure, maybe lower-class women did, but the upper-class? No, no. Well, except for sometimes they did. But whenever they did, it usually wasn't their parents, and when they did, they usually got away with it, because again... Women just didn't do that kind of thing. And another reason is during the Victorian era especially, women's choice of murder was poison. Women have gotten away with poisoning people for centuries. Women especially poison people to get what they needed or what they wanted. And even though the thought of a woman committing an act of murder of any kind was unfathomable to the minds of Victorians, deep in the back of their minds they knew that for centuries women have killed and they almost always use poison to do it so when the newspapers came out that lizzie was the prime suspect for this horrific crime people could not wrap their heads around it But a lot of people suddenly remembered about the article that was posted not too long ago about Lizzie trying to buy some lethal poison from a druggist and that he refused. So this is a theory that I'm going to throw out early before we get into the trial. There is one theory that Lizzie tried to poison her parents when Emma was out of town. Because she couldn't get the poison that she wanted from the druggist, she might have tried to do like a a home concoction kind of a poison instead, to just work with what you have. And that's why everyone was sick in the morning because she was trying to get rid of them before Emma came home. But it wasn't succeeding, and everyone was still, you know, alive by that point. But that would mean that she was also risking killing. Bridget, the maid, her uncle, and even herself, because even Lizzie was slightly ill. The fact that Lizzie was sick, and if she was only doing this for the money, that does throw a wrench into it, but you never know, she could have pretended to have been sick. We don't 100% know if she was ill or not. Despite the rumors flying around that she had tried to poison her whole family, the High Society of Fall River and women's groups from around the world rallied around Lizzie, and they did all they could to win her release. They wrote newspaper articles, sent telegrams, and wrote letters to any attorney they thought that could help. The case against Lizzie continued in November of 1892 when the grand jury was seated and all of the evidence was reviewed. The final witness was Alice Russell, a good friend of Lizzie. She told the grand jury that she had seen Lizzie burning a dress at the kitchen stove three days after the murders. Lizzie had told Alice that the dress had been stained by paint, but others wondered if it was blood and Lizzie was trying to destroy evidence. The grand jury charged Lizzie with three counts of murder, one for Andrew, one for Abby, and one for both of them. And I have never heard of that before. So if any of my listeners are lawyers, and if that's still a thing that you can get charged with, uh, please let me know. I'm curious to know if they've Change the rules since the 1800s. I mean, I'm sure they obviously have, but I'm just curious about the the extra count there for both. I didn't know you could get an extra charge. That's uh, I find that really interesting. After the murder charges were officially instated, the papers had a field day, and so did the rest of the world. This was the original O.J. Simpson trial from 1893. While preparing for the trial, District Attorney Hosea Knowlton received hundreds of written theories, tips, and predictions obtained from so called psychics, Ouija board readings, and people claiming to have had visions. In addition, Strangers wrote in confessing to the crimes. Women's groups were also writing Lizzie letters in prison and they were also writing the judges daily, telling them that it wasn't fair that Lizzie was going to have an all-male jury because they were worried that she wouldn't get a fair trial. Regardless of public opinion, the date was set and Lizzie was still the prime suspect. the trial of the century began on June 5, 1893 at the Bristol County Courthouse in New Bedford, Massachusetts. The prosecution side of the case was being handled by D.A. Knowlton with the assistance of D.A. William H. Moody from Essex County. This was Moody's first murder case. Lizzie was defended by attorney Andrew Jennings who had been her father's old attorney and George D. Robinson who was the former governor of Massachusetts. There was a rumor going around town that Governor Robinson was being paid $25,000 and this would have been a lot of money back then. Murder trials in Massachusetts required three judges to preside. One of the judges was Justin Drury and he had been appointed seven years before by Governor Robinson. The selection of the jury took only four hours. Many historians believe that the all-male jury actually helped Lizzie out because it was difficult for the men on the jury panel to believe that a daughter would have done something this brutal to her own parents. As to be expected, the trial received huge national news coverage. Newspapers covered what was happening in the trial, but they also focused on what people in the audience were wearing. Women in attendance were referred to as Valentines and Daisies. A lot of attention was also paid to what Lizzie wore and her behaviors throughout the trial. Artists drew court scenes and Lizzie became the star. Outside of the courtroom, police had to fight off crowds who were trying to get into the courtroom after the doors were closed because it was full. There are also many accounts of suffragettes being there and they were all protesting for Lizzie's immediate release. It is believed that Lizzie had been coached by former Governor Robinson on how to project a quality of innocence, Her clothes were stylish but black, and she carried a fan with her that she used to hide her face during gruesome testimony. One dramatic scene in the trial occurred when attorney Jennings tossed a dress onto a table and accidentally knocked the bag onto the floor. The actual skulls of Andrew and Abby fell out and rolled across the floor, and right when this happened, Lizzie dramatically fainted. This scene was reported in all of the newspapers. Now some people think it was staged and she already knew that was going to happen and she did it right on cue because a lot of people think Lizzie was a really good actress. She just knew the people in the room and she knew what she was up against and she played her cards well. Other people think it was an accident and she actually did faint. We will never know the truth. Staged or not, it added a ton of drama for the newspapers to talk about the next day. And if you're wondering how the defense got the skulls into the courtroom, District Attorney Knowlton actually ordered for the heads of Andrew and Abby to be severed off before their burial. After their removal, Dr. Doyle then took the skulls home and boiled them in a pot on his kitchen stove. He did this so that he could completely remove the flesh and hair off the skulls so then he could use them in court. And he held on to the skulls for months before the trial by keeping them in his home. During the trial, the prosecution actually held up each skull with the hatchet that they thought was the murder weapon to try to prove that the hatchet matched the markings on the skulls. Like I keep saying, the Victorian era was weird. Amongst all this drama, the prosecution had a difficult time proving their case, They didn't have enough evidence really to prove anything. They lacked eyewitnesses. There were no accounts of blood being found on Lizzie's body or any of the clothes that they looked at. Experts did testify that the hatchet that they had found with the broken handle did match the wounds in the skulls of Abby and Andrew. However, they could not say that it was 100% the murder weapon. The traces of blood and hair found on the blade were not even human. The only real hope for the prosecution was the rambling testimony that Lizzie had given at her inquest. However, this testimony was thrown out because Lizzie was not represented by an attorney and she was not told that day that she was the prime suspect and that anything she said could be used against her later. The druggist testimony was also not allowed because the poison did not seem related to the case and his claim that she had asked for poison happened on a different day from the murders. To counter the dress burning incident, Emma and Lizzie's statements testified that the dress was actually stained with just paint and the house painter had also testified that the story was true. The trial lasted 13 days, which was long for 1893. At the end, Lizzie never testified. She simply said this statement, I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. In the end, Justice Drury's instructions to the jury were very controversial. He pretty much just restated the defense's side of things. He highlighted Lizzie's character and her church activities, and he questioned the abilities of the expert witnesses. His instructions seemed to be telling the jury to just find Lizzie innocent. After deliberating for only one hour, the jury found Lizzie not guilty. The courtroom erupted into cheers, and Lizzie cried. Even DA Nolted congratulated her. Lizzie returned to Fall River after spending 10 months in jail. However, even though high society came to her defense at the beginning of the ordeal When she returned to Fall River, she was suddenly shunned. No one wanted to socialize with her, and at church, the pews near her were left empty. Lizzie and Emma were now rich, and they spent no time moving into a large 14-room house on the hill a few months after the trial. Lizzie had a winter bedroom and a summer bedroom. Each bedroom also had its own bathroom. Lizzie had a library, indoor plumbing, with hand-painted porcelain fixtures, canvas ceilings, Tiffany crystal lights and carved woodwork. Lizzie and Emma also hired a housekeeper and several servants. Lizzie also decided to name her house Maple Croft, and she had the name engraved on the top granite step, which was seen as being a show-off by her neighbors. She also changed her name from Lizzie Andrew Borden to simply Elizabeth Borden. And during the Victorian period, probably won't surprise you to hear that changing your name simply wasn't done, especially by single women. The list of things you were allowed to do was way shorter than the things you couldn't do during the Victorian period. For men and women it was kind of insane. Elizabeth was able to make friends in other cities. One in particular was a young stage actress named Nance O'Neill. Elizabeth met her when she was visiting Boston and the two really hit it off. O'Neill visited Maplecroft which again was shocking to Fall River because actresses were considered on the same level as prostitutes during this time period which boggles my mind the way we look at Hollywood stars today. But yeah, they were on the same level as prostitutes back in the Victorian period. This friendship seemed to cause a division between Elizabeth and her sister, Emma. Emma decided to move out in 1904, and she eventually settled down in New Hampshire. The two sisters never saw each other again, and they both died within nine days of each other. Elizabeth passed away on June 1st, 1927 from pneumonia, and the day Lizzie died, Emma fell and broke her hip. Emma passed away on June 10th, 1927, 27 from chronic nephritis, which is an inflammation of the kidneys. The Bordens are all buried together in Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River. The murders of their father and stepmother have never been solved, and the case has been studied by hundreds of people over the years, from experts to amateurs. In 1997, Stanford University even did a mock trial, and the verdict was the same, not guilty. Have all heard the case let's talk about some theories before we jump into the ghost stories as you can imagine thousands of people have their own theories and many elements about this case have become embellished over the years so it's getting harder to separate fact from fiction i have researched the lizzie borden case for many years way before i decided to make a podcast but to prepare for this episode i wanted to refresh my memory so i listened to a bunch of podcasts and watch historical videos And one thing that I noticed was that almost all of them describe a different chain of events. Now, I'm not saying the people who did the hard work researching the case are wrong by any means because many sources describe things that never actually happened as fact. One thing I noticed while doing my research, every article, podcast, YouTube video, anything I've ever listened to about this case always describes the chain of events differently. And I'm not saying that's anyone's fault because... It's hard to know the truth because even the court documented testimony is only going off of a few people. We really don't know what happened in that house. And so many things have become embellished and added on over the years for drama that we truly don't know anymore what was actually fact and what was fiction. And I also have links to all of my sources down below in the show notes. So please feel free to go through those read through them, watch some of the videos, but you'll start noticing right away that everyone has a different take on this story. I did my best to actually use the real court documents and testimony from the courtroom, but even the articles I looked at had things changed. so. I don't really know the true story I just did the best I could so I probably missed some things or got some things wrong but that just adds to this big mystery of what happened inside the Lizzie Borden house and also let's not forget that the famous nursery rhyme Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her father 40 wax. when she saw what she had done she gave her mother 41 and obviously this little ditty is not true and it's also backwards because Abby died first then andrew and also to top it all off of course maybe lizzie didn't do it because we don't know this is all alleged But this has not stopped people from speculating what could have happened. And I'm going to go over some of the most popular theories. Now, these are all just theories. No one really knows what happened, as I keep saying, but these are all alleged and nobody has any idea if any of these are true. So, theory number one, the crazy-eyed stranger. This theory has made its rounds on the internet, but I could not find anything to back this up from the original court documents. And historians think that this story is completely fabricated either for an urban legend or by people of fall river having mass hysteria after the you know the murders the first couple of hours after the murders or people just wanting to get in on the big spectacle that came after the fact. So the theory goes that witnesses saw a tall, disheveled madman running from the house, holding a bloody hatchet with a crazed look in his eye. Some accounts have even claimed that he was laughing maniacally like he belonged in an asylum, which is again, totally what Victorians would think. Another account says that some people saw a man 15 miles away from fall river sitting on the side of the road covered in blood. However, this was never in any of the official reports and most historians that i found think that this was completely made up after the fact theory number two bridget sullivan helped lizzie get away with it according to this theory after lizzie killed the bordens bridget helped her change out of her clothes clean up and then find a good hiding spot for the dress that was now covered in blood however this theory loses its traction pretty quickly because multiple neighbors swear that they saw bridget outside washing the windows all morning after andrew left for his walk around town and bridget talked with the next door neighbors maid for quite a while and this was all documented others believe that lizzie and bridget were in a relationship together this would have been a huge no-no during the victorian time And some people think that Abby Borden had caught Lizzie and Emma together. Abby then threatened to tell Andrew Borden and Lizzie uh, kind of like panicked and attacked her in a fit of rage. However, now this is just my personal opinion, but this one doesn't make sense to me because if Lizzie was actually in a relationship with Bridget and she cared for her, Wouldn't she have cared enough about her to call her by her real name instead of just calling her Maggie all the time? Like rudely too, from what I've heard, like she rudely would call her Maggie along with her sister and act like she was above her all the time. Also, if she was afraid that Abby would tell her father, why kill Andrew too? Because if Lizzie would have already taken care of the problem, I don't understand why she would have needed to also kill her father if it truly, if the motive was only... That she freaked out because Abby had seen them together and she was scared of, I don't know, maybe getting disowned or something or kicked out of the house. And also, you know, you can't deny that big dose of Victorian shame she would have got. But still, it just seems weird to me. If it truly was about this, it would have been easier for her just to take care of the problem and act like a crazy person came in the house while Bridget was washing windows for a good alibi. And then Lizzie could have actually been outside for a long time acting like she was helping or doing something else. I don't know, this one, I just don't buy this one at all. So theory number three is that Bridget was the killer. According to this theory, Bridget was an Irish immigrant and immigrants were treated horribly during this time period, especially the Irish. Andrew was known for being a harsh man, so maybe Andrew and his wife, Abby, were both cruel and abusive toward her. And on the day of the murders, she had had enough and took her revenge while she could. Theory number four is that the killer was Lizzie and Emma's uncle, John. Now, John had been at the home that morning, and from what I found in the documents, he kind of just randomly showed up, so it was a little weird that he was there at all. And on the day of the murders, he claimed to have gone to see a family member, but many think that this never happened. So some speculate that he instead pretended to leave the house, but he either hid inside the home or Lizzie quietly and secretly let him back inside after Andrew left. However, his family said that he was with him at the time of the murders so did the family cover for him no one really knows but i do find it interesting that at some point in the testimony john just randomly shows back up out of the blue and he's all of a sudden there answering questions from police and no one really knows what time he came back And he just kind of randomly just popped up at the house when the bodies were discovered. So that is a theory and that is an interesting one. And according to records, he also was a butcher. So he would know his way around things like axes and meat cleavers. Now, what would his motive be? Some believe that he was actually there to have a chat with Andrew about money and they had an argument before he left. Some people speculate that could have happened and he got mad and he came back for his revenge. Some believe that Lizzie and her uncle were actually in cahoots and had been planning this out for quite a while. Some even think Emma was in on it and that's why Emma was suddenly out of town and John suddenly showed up that day. So it is interesting theory and it's one that I actually kind of half believe I'll get to my theory at the very, very end after we talk about the ghosts. Only two more theories, I promise, and then we're getting into the spooky stuff. So the fifth theory is that a man named William Borden had killed Andrew and Abby. So William was the supposed illegitimate son of Andrew, who had an affair with his sister-in-law, Phoebe Hathaway Borden, who was married to andrew's brother charles borden i know that sounds really confusing if you need to replay that and listen to that weird family dynamic feel free So this alleged affair happened while Andrew was still married to his first wife, Sarah. So William was born in 1856. However, there is no birth record for William. So it is hard to know who the father of William actually is. And I actually looked it up and apparently during the Victorian era, another weird thing they did, when there was an illegitimate kid, they actually didn't make a birth record or they didn't announce it. And it was very hard to find any birth certificate at all. So it could have been that the whole family knew about this and they all just decided to keep it an in-family secret and just move on. But because we don't have a birth record showing William's dad, we have no idea if Uh, Andrew Borden is actually the father. So if this is true, this obviously was hidden from the people of Fall River because this would have been a massive scandal, especially back then. So according to this theory, William had been threatening Andrew for money and he was not going to take no for an answer. On the day of the murders, it said that William somehow snuck into the house and killed Abby hid somewhere in the home and waited for Andrew to come into the house so that he could then kill him. Lizzie suspected William the whole time, but she did not want to say anything to authorities because she knew that this would spill her family's secret. Okay, the final and biggest theory that is out there is that Lizzie committed the murders. And um, before I say it, a little trigger warning here. If you wanted to skip ahead a few seconds and not listen to this, it's um, it's, it's pretty gross and disturbing. So I'm just going to give you guys a little warning. So if you need to skip ahead a couple seconds, I would do that now. There are some really disturbing rumors that Andrew was sexually abusing his daughters, but that he mostly targeted Lizzie. Lizzie apparently got sick of his constant abuse and decided to kill Andrew for his crimes and Abby along with him for letting Andrew get away with it for so long. First, Lizzie tried to kill them with poison while Emma was out of town, but she was not able to get the proper poison for the job from the druggist, So she tried to make a homemade poison and was secretly slipping it into the family's food. This is why the family was suffering from a random illness. Now, I don't know if this is true. I kept finding this and I don't know if this is documented or if this is one of those embellishment parts where people present it as fact or not. But... According to some reports I've found, apparently the first time that the family got sick on the first day, Abby went across the street to the doctor and told him flat out that she thinks someone's poisoning her family. If that is true, maybe she was thinking Lizzie was doing it. And if that's not true, it does add to the spook factor for as an embellishment after the fact. So let's get back to this theory. So this is just a theory, but this is the main theory that people go with. By the day of the murders, Lizzie noticed that her homemade poison wasn't working. Most people believe that she wanted to kill andrew and abby before her sister emma came home from her trip so that meant that lizzie would have to take her chance at the best opportunity so the day of the murders while bridget was outside washing the windows lizzie went to check on her to ask her how long that she would be outside then many people think after this lizzie went back inside grabbed a hatchet went up to her room possibly also with a wash basin and a pitcher of water Then Lizzie looked out the window to make sure that Bridget was still outside doing her chores. It's then that she slipped off her dress, pulled out a hidden hatchet, and snuck into the guest room while Abby was making the bed. Then, Lizzie attacked Abby, killing her. After the job was done, Lizzie quickly went to her room, washed the blood off, put back on her dress from the morning, and went downstairs and dumped the bloody water out. From what I found online, many people believe that she dumped the bloody water down the uh, privy, which would have been their toilet, in the basement. Because with forensic science being what it was, they would never have known that there was bloody water down in there. And also, people believe that she hid the hatchet inside the basement as well. Then they think that she went back upstairs, possibly to lie down or just to hang out upstairs until her father came home. So after Andrew Borden came home and uh, the maid Bridget let him in, Lizzie laughed at the situation at the top of the stairs. Because remember, Bridget said that she heard Lizzie laughing upstairs. So after Andrew came in, got the key, went upstairs through the back staircase, came back down, Lizzie came downstairs and acted like everything was normal, asked Andrew about the mail, and then went into the dining room to pretend like she was ironing handkerchiefs, and that's when she tried to get Bridget to leave again twice. First by questioning if she was doing anything that afternoon, and then talking about a great dress sale that was going on that afternoon in town. So Bridget didn't really want to do any of these things, and then Bridget started to not feel well again. So she told Lizzie that she was going to go lay down. So once Bridget got to her third story room, Lizzie once again took off her dress and was completely in the nude, according to this theory, went into the sitting room where Andrew was sleeping and killed him and then quickly washed the blood off, cleaned up, got dressed and this time she hid the weapon somewhere. They still to this day don't know what the actual weapon was. I mean, they know it was probably a hatchet, but they never were able to find the exact one. Even though one of the hatchets markings, the broken one, did match the wounds on the heads, they still weren't able to definitively say if that was the weapon or not. After hiding or cleaning off the weapon really well, that's when she called up the stairs to Bridget for help. Now, some believe that she had used a different dress entirely to commit these murders and that she wasn't in the nude and that later on after the cops left, that's the dress that she burned. So she found a really good hiding spot for it and then burned it later on. Some people think that she might've even found a great hiding place for the hatchet. And then after the police left, she found an even better hiding spot for the hatchet. But this is one of the biggest theories that people have is that Lizzie did it and she did it this way. Now, when I was describing the timeline of the actual crime, I said that there was blood everywhere at the crime scenes, but other sources I looked at claim that the crime scene was too clean. And by that, I mean, not blood spattering everywhere. So I took a deep dive into this topic and I found some possible reasons for this. The main one I can find is that Lizzie's friends helped her clean up right before the police arrived. It's a documented fact that Lizzie's friends did come to the house after the word spread and many women were cleaning the house for Lizzie while the police were still conducting their investigations. I don't think these women were trying to help her cover up a crime, but people back then just had no idea how important it was to preserve a crime scene and not anything. These women truly thought that they were just being helpful so that Lizzie would not have to clean up the big mess by herself. And another piece to this theory is that there is still no proof to this day that Andrew was ever abusing his daughters. So what do you guys think is the real story? Do you think that Lizzie did it or someone completely different? I'm actually going to post this question on Instagram and Facebook so please let me know your theories in the comment section of those posts after such a violent crime it won't shock many of you to hear that the house is known for some ghostly activity in 1996 the home opened as an official bed and breakfast the then owner martha McGinn, inherited the home from her grandparents who purchased the house in 1948. in 2021 the home was sold to lance zahl who is continuing it as a bed and breakfast. The Fall River Historical Society worked to preserve the house back to the way it looked when the Bordens lived there. None of the furniture is original to the house, but it is all time period accurate. They actually used the crime scene photos as a guide to bring the house back to how it used to look. Fun fact about the house, the house has a dress that was worn by Elizabeth Montgomery when she portrayed Lizzie in the famous TV movie The Legend of Lizzie Borden that came out in 1975. For the younger audience that's listening, Elizabeth Montgomery was a famous actress who is best known for playing the witch Samantha in the famous hit TV show Bewitched that ran from 1964 to 1972. In the movie The Legend of Lizzie Borden, Montgomery portrayed Lizzie Borden as a cool calculated killer. They do go with the theory that Lizzie killed her father and stepmother while she was in the nude. Montgomery also found out a few years after she made the movie, that she was actually related to the Bordens, so that's a creepy coincidence. Today, the home is still a bed and breakfast, along with historical tours and, from what I found online, a really good breakfast. The home also offers ghost tours and allows paranormal investigations. Now, on that note, it's time to enter the Lizzie Borden house, and here are some of the terrifying paranormal claims. The house is now a bed and breakfast many people who have stayed in the home have reported strange and frightening things doors seem to open and slam shut on their own people have also reported the strange sounds of disembodied footsteps in the middle of the day and during the night objects also like to move around quite a bit there is a rocking chair that is in one of the upstairs bedrooms that has been known to rock on its own Near Mr. Borden's bedroom on the second floor, there is a small silver tin on a writing desk. This tin is filled with coins and small bills. Legend has it that if you do not leave behind money for the ghost of Mr. Borden, it's said that his ghost will follow you home. Many guests who have spent the night also have reported getting scratched, pushed, and shoved by unseen hands. Many people who reportedly get scratched have had this occur after they have had something rude to say against Abby or Lizzie. Something else to keep in mind. It's said that if you enter the house, you should call Lizzie by her real name Elizabeth. You should do this because apparently her ghost gets really angry if you call her Lizzie and she will scratch or push you. Other things she will do if you disrespect her is that she will not let you sleep at night by moving or knocking over things in your room. The third floor attic bedroom has a chest of old dolls and toys. The reason for this is because the house is said to be haunted by three child spirits. This is because 40 years before the murders of Abby and Andrew Borden, Andrew's uncle owned the house next door. His wife, Alyssa Borden, was suffering from postpartum depression and killed her three daughters by drowning them in the well. Then she went into the basement and slit her own throat. And that is documented so it actually happened. It is said that now the three girls like to come over to the Borden house and play with the toys that have been left out for them. They move the dolls and often other toys all throughout the home and tour guides almost always find the toys in random places throughout the house. Many people think that the little girls don't know they are dead and they continue to try to get the adults attention by moving toys around the house. People have also claimed to hear the sound of girls crying. They also run around the home and many people have heard their running footsteps and children (laughs) giggling. One creepy story from the home is that one day, tour guides found two dead pigeons on the first floor. Many people believe that the ghost of Andrew killed both birds. Down in the basement of the home, people often hear the spirit... Of Alyssa crying in the spot where they found her body after she had killed her children. Also, a creepy thing is that you can still see blood stains from Andrew Borden. When he was killed, his blood soaked through the sofa onto the sitting room floor. And if you look up through the rafters of the basement, you can still see the stain. If you shine a black light on it, you can still see the blood. There is also a spot in the basement that it's said that if you take a picture in this certain spot, you can see the face of Andrew. Another claim in the house is that people see dark shadow figures moving around the home. Many ghost shows and paranormal groups have investigated the house, from professionals to YouTubers to amateurs and, of course, television shows. Ghost Adventures has been there and they reportedly felt intense feelings of rage and sadness and many other dramatic things because Ghost Adventures is always a little dramatic. But they did capture some recorded evidence. Also, the team was going off a theory that something had possessed Lizzie, making her kill her father and Abby. They pointed to Alyssa Borden killing her children as possible evidence. Personally, I don't like it when ghost shows or anybody tries to link cases like this because I feel like it undermines uh, the mental health because postpartum depression is a real thing and it's horrible. And especially back in the 1800s, people didn't really know about it. So I think it's not a good idea to try to link mental health cases to actual other instances of murder and things like that but that's just how i feel about that if you believe this to be true i'm not trying to say it's not true because like i said i haven't investigated this place i actually have a plan to go here in the future but for now i haven't been there myself and um, that's just how i feel it's not a good idea to link actual mental health issues to paranormal claims but that's just how I feel about that. The Ghost Adventures team also used REM pods that got many hits when questions were asked. Zach also thinks that he captured the sound of a drawer opening. He was sitting on a bed on the second floor alone, and in another room next door, he heard a wooden scraping sound. He went to investigate, and he found a drawer on one of the nightstands that was suddenly open, and he was just in that room, and it was closed earlier. Right as he was filming the open drawer, his camera began to malfunction by shaking, but his other two crew members ran up the stairs to investigate with him, and it looked like, according to their footage, he wasn't moving his hands. Of course, that could be faked, but from what I saw, it didn't look like It was an actual violent shaking. It honestly looked like the lens was shaking within the camera, and that's kind of weird. The team also caught an EVP of a creepy voice saying, keep on killing, keep them coming. And they also heard the name Borden while doing a spirit box session. And right after they heard this, a flashlight on the ground behind them suddenly turned on. Zach then asked for the spirit to turn it back off when they suddenly heard a creepy, angry voice from the spirit box saying, Tell them about the girl. They also asked who attacked people in the home, and they got a voice saying, Lizzie. Other TV shows who have gone to the home are Dead Files and Kindred Spirits, and many psychic mediums have come to the house to investigate as well. Plenty of paranormal groups who are not on TV have experienced things inside the home. Many have reported seeing a black mist that travels around the house. Also, the ghosts of Lizzie, Andrew, and Abby have all been seen. Some reports claim to have seen Lizzie walking down the staircase before she vanishes at the bottom. Another have claimed to see Abby walking into the guest bedroom only to vanish. Andrew has been seen coming and going as if he is replaying his last moments on the day he died. And some have even claimed to have seen Lizzie standing in the guest bedroom with a blank expression holding an axe in her hands. Others have claimed to see a glint of a sharp, clean axe in the corner of their eye. Battery drains on phones, cameras, and other devices reportedly happen often, and there is a YouTuber that I found named Seth Borden who is actually related to Lizzie. He went to the house with other YouTubers and paranormal investigators to do a ghost hunt, and they all caught several EVPs. During a spirit box session in the dining room, they heard the word family and then someone said the name Seth. So that was interesting. They also caught a clear EVP of a man saying, yeah, Lizzie Borden lives here. Most people who enter the home say that you can feel the dark energy from the day of the murders. It is believed that the guests who stay in the home are keeping the paranormal energy alive the home that has captivated the world for over 100 years and is still attracting visitors who want to know the real story and still be a part of the spectacle of the famous case of Lizzie Borden. all enjoyed this episode about the hauntings at the lizzie borden house i had a lot of fun covering this episode I put as much research as I could fit into this one. And I know that this story has been redone countless times by podcasts and YouTube videos. So I hope that I was able to put my own spin on it and make it interesting because I know that you guys have probably heard this story a hundred times over. But I'm still so glad that I was able to do the Lizzie Borden house for my first episode of the Halloween series. Before I leave, I think I'm gonna give you my theory as to what happened. I mentioned that I was going to talk about it later and I am. So for the outro, I'm just going to tell you my theory of the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. And my theory is I think that Lizzie did it. I know that a lot of people still to this day have a hard time believing that women could ever do such a thing or that women aren't strong enough to do things, but not to sound like really like morbid or anything, but women, when they're mad, we do crazy things and I've never done anything like this and I will never do anything like this. But in Lizzie's case, if some of the rumors are true of the horrible upbringing that she had and all that trauma... And then after her wanting something so much and she took her chance to get it, I think she could have easily done this. And a lot of people think that she got away with it because she was a woman. And I truly believe that because to the Victorian mind, if you admitted that women were capable of doing something like this, it would be really hard to go home to your wives and your daughters and look at them in the face and think they could do this to me too someday. So I really think that's what happened. Um, I do think that somebody did help her hide the crimes though. Maybe Bridget did help um, or maybe even her uncle. And I, like I said, I have two theories. So the one is that Lizzie totally did it. The other one, and this is just my theory. The other one I have in mind is that Lizzie did have her uncle John do it, but Lizzie was the orchestrator and maybe Lizzie kept telling John about how horrible she was living or, or maybe even made up a story about abuse or maybe the abuse was true and she needed John to help her do the crime so that she could get out from this over oppressed, you know, house that she was in. But either way, she either did it herself or she had someone else do it for her and everybody helped cover it up. Those are my two main theories and I go back and forth, but all I know is that there's no way Lizzie was in the house that long, didn't hear anything or see anything. So regardless of who did it, Lizzie had to have either known who did it or she did it herself. I read a lot of the court testimony and the court documents and honestly I found Lizzie's behavior very interesting and this is where I go back to she totally did this. Because I think she did it, she knew her audience, and she played them like a fiddle. She knew the men on the jury because, you know, men in Victorian times were very different and they were all upper class and so was she. So she was able to really work the jury, work the judge, work the DA, and just kind of weasel her way out of it. Because still, at the end of the day, there wasn't enough evidence. I don't even think today we could prove If somebody did exactly that without any security cameras, let's pretend that modern technology is not there anymore. I still don't think you could prove that um, someone in that same situation did it because there just wasn't enough evidence. But I truly think that if Lizzie did it, she knew her audience and she played them and that's how she got away with it. Allegedly, of course. So our next episode is actually going to be in New Orleans and it's going to be about the Lawlery Mansion and... That is a true serial killer case. So I will talk about serial killers in general and we'll get into that whole dynamic in the next episode. And after Lawlery Mansion on Halloween Day, officially we will be doing Loftus Hall and I hope that you guys are excited. As always, links to all of my sources are down below in the show notes and if you would like to help support the show... You can join me on my Patreon page. I have a link to that down below in the show notes as well. You can just pay me a dollar a month if you'd like. Um, I have a bunch of different options. I've only got $1 and $3 options. You get bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time. All the money goes to anything that I pay for for the podcast itself. So I pay for things like sound effects, the music you guys were hearing, all that. I have to buy a license to be able to use all of those things. Plus, you will get a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail after your first monthly payment. And don't worry if you just wanna give me $1 in bounce or $3 in bounce, I totally appreciate any help I can get. Thank you guys so much for joining me today and I cannot wait to be back with Lollery Mansion probably midway through October-ish or the last weekend before Halloween it will come out. And I am so excited for Halloween. I hope that you guys all have a happy and safe October. And I'll see you guys back here really soon on Historically Haunted. Bye everybody and happy Halloween.